Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, your source for policy raves and rants from Tech Freedom, your Washington, D.C. advocate for the freedom to tinker and innovate. I'm Evan Schwarzschreiber, your host. On today's show, the State of the Union, what will President Obama say tonight about tech policy? Probably nothing, but that won't stop us from saying it for him. Joining me in our D.C. studio is Baron Soka, the benevolent overlord and founder of Tech Freedom. Baron, it's great to have you on your own show once again. Thanks for inviting me back. <laughs> well, we'll see if, you know, depending on how you behave today, we'll see if we'll invite you back for a third time. Uh, so we live in a digital age. It's becoming increasingly ridiculous that politicians, including the president, just seem to ignore tech policy in these big ceremonial State of the Union addresses that usually don't lead to any sort of action. However, there are a lot of items this year in 2016 that actually do have some traction and there might be some movement on tech policy. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand what those are and what the president should be saying, even if he won't be saying it. Well, the number one issue that everyone's going to be listening for is encryption. This has made the headlines in both of the Republican and Democratic debates. You've had candidates who've been just making things up about encryption, claiming that uh, encryption was somehow involved in the attacks because the San Bernardino attackers had encryption on their phones, which, uh, by the way, everybody does. You're seeing candidates just grab at straws in order to try to, to say there's something that has to be done here. And so Obama really is going to have to respond to this. Thus far, he hasn't really said very much. He's been asked. There's been a WhiteHouse.gov petition that asked him to take a strong stand on encryption. And instead, he really dodged the issue. He's set up a, a commission to talk about the, the question. They're going to come out with some report in the next few months. We'll see what they say. We may see something as well from the, the, the Congress. Uh, but right now, the president has an opportunity to say something about encryption. And what I'd like him to say would be something like the following, that uh, encryption is really a fundamental right of self-defense. It's essential to privacy. And indeed, it's essential to security, that you can't build national security by undermining the security of every American. And that's what uh, these backdoors that law enforcement is talking about would do. If you require that every internet company be able to turn over all the contents of, of communications to the government, you've essentially banned uh, the only secure form of encryption, which is end-to-end -end encryption that, that, that secures the entire channel of communication. And you've created backdoors that uh, can be used by foreign governments or by malicious hackers. There's just no such thing as a backdoor that only good guys can use. So let's back up a second and explain, since you mentioned that pretty much every American already has encryption on their phone in one way or another. What is encryption at a basic level and what are the different types of encryption? You mentioned end-to-end, -end, there's disk encryption. Just explain to our listeners what it is and why it matters for their cybersecurity. Sure, it's as simple as locking your door. It's the idea that you prevent others from getting access to the communication when it's, when it's intercepted in route. And what the administration's really proposing or what uh, certainly many Republicans have been proposing uh, is that these communications would have to be sent in a way that they could be opened by the companies that you use, by your webmail provider, by others in the middle, so that those companies could turn information over to the government. We had this debate back in the 1990s. It was really the formative debate of internet policy long before net neutrality and cybersecurity information sharing were, were a thing. 
uh, this was the debate, and now we're having it all over again, and people seem to have forgotten the lesson of those debates from the 1990s, which once again is you, you can't make people secure while taking away the, the technology that actually secures their communications. And you mentioned the White House's lackluster response to over 100,000 people who said you need to publicly affirm support for strong encryption. And he basically said, we'll talk about this more. But that hasn't stopped people in his administration, including his FBI director, from making the round saying Silicon Valley, the hub of innovation, Google, Facebook, all these wonderful companies with smart people. If they haven't figured out a solution for the government to have access without compromising cybersecurity, then they just haven't tried hard enough. What do you say to that? I say it's bullshit. The administration is trying to have this both ways. The president's trying to avoid taking a political hit for coming out against encryption, and understandably so, while his FBI director is coming out with essentially the same position that the FBI had in the 1990s with some very insignificant modifications, that, that this time it's not a technological fix, it's just a mandate for private companies. And they're dressing it up in this rhetoric that uh, somehow Silicon Valley companies aren't trying enough or they're just trying to protect their business models. That's, that's bullshit. They're really just trying to uh, propose, propose the same approach in the 1990s of, of making sure that American companies have to turn over information uh, that's sent by private users. That's something that China certainly loves. It's something that uh, would thrill the Vladimir Putins of the world. Donald Trump would certainly love that. But it's un-American, and it's, it's really embarrassing that you're seeing that kind of thing come out of the Obama administration, uh, that it's not been rejected by uh, Hillary Clinton, and that the only people who are clearly standing up against that in the primaries today are Bernie Sanders on the left and Rand Paul and Ted Cruz on the right. Everyone else seems to be jumping on the national security bandwagon to one degree or another. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that while you may be, it's, it's very unlikely that any individual is going to be the victim of a terrorist attack. It is highly likely that a lot of people are going to be the victims of cyber attacks. And to give up security in, in one way for a false sense of security in another way seems pretty misguided. And it's worth pointing out here that something like 42 Americans have actually been killed in terrorist attacks since 9-11, which happens to be, the last time I checked, the same percentage of Americans that are very worried that they themselves or someone in their family are going to be the victims of a terrorist attack in the next year. In other words, there is a fantastic disconnect here. It's a, it's a techno panic uh, about a panic about terrorism generally and a techno panic about encryption as a means for terrorists to communicate with each other. We saw in Paris that the real problem is not encryption. It's the utter incompetence of the French and Belgian police. Once again, the, the law enforcement agencies, the intelligence agencies, they have the information they need. They're just not using it. Well, you mentioned that uh, attacking encryption is un-American, and largely because it's, it's fair to say that Americans have a First Amendment right to use encryption. Encryption, you know, in its basic form is just math. And if you're going to try to outlaw math, that's pretty ridiculous. And indeed, that's what the court said back in the 1990s. There was a long line of cases about this fight that wound up with exactly that result. And speaking of un-American, that brings us to mass surveillance. While encryption might be a First Amendment issue, mass surveillance certainly is a Fourth Amendment issue. The, the warrant protections that Americans are supposed to enjoy, but in the digital age have not really been able to enjoy. President Obama signed the USA Freedom Act, put an end to the bulk collection of Americans' telephone records. But there's so much more work to be done, 
And there's been politicians who are already saying, oh, man, in the wake of the Paris attacks, we really got to bring back that capability, which was never proven to be successful in fighting terrorism at all. So what should President Obama be saying about mass surveillance in tonight's address? Well, it's really two things. First, he needs to come out and very clearly defend the USA Freedom Act as really a very moderate, mild, uh, indeed a compromised set of reforms. And he needs to defend them both from uh, people like Marco Rubio, who are now calling for repeal of the USA Freedom Act, uh, but also against uh, people like uh, Hillary Clinton, who seem to have gone wobbly. Hillary didn't come out in favor of USA Freedom until the last possible minute. And so you now are in this bizarre situation where a law that was supported by two-thirds of the Senate and, and over three-quarters of the House now seems to be in some ways in jeopardy. So first, he needs to defend that. But second, he needs to, to start reminding us that uh, there's more to mass surveillance than just the Section 215 program that was at issue in USA Freedom. We are going to see next year expire another law, uh, Section 702, that governs primarily surveillance of, of non-U.S. persons. And to make a long story short, that, that is another form of mass surveillance. It's one where you might very well strike a different trade-off in terms of the, the balance between liberty and privacy. But we, we need to do something in significant part because we are now heading for a digital trade war with Europe. Uh, there was a Supreme Court uh, called the European uh, Court of Justice, uh, essentially their Supreme Court, decision that came out last year that, that struck down the agreement that has allowed private companies in America to use data about Europeans since, um, since the two, early 2000s. And that agreement, Safe Harbor, really was essential for having an open internet that worked around the world. And we now need to replace that with a new Safe Harbor. The administration has been negotiating a new deal, but it seems that it's not really going to address the Europeans' concerns, which were about government surveillance. It seems very likely instead that this new safe harbor agreement is really only going to address uh, private companies' use of data rather than the government's use of data. So that conversation needs to start now. We need some leadership from this president, finally, on privacy issues. We begin with that. It would touch upon uh, email privacy protections, uh, making sure there's better oversight and transparency about the U.S. government's use of data. All those things need to start now, and uh, we're probably going to have another ECJ, European Court decision that uh, strikes down this new agreement. And if that happens, all hell could break loose. It really may be the case that uh, the services that we take for granted today stop working across the Atlantic. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that this is not just an issue of principles and civil liberties. Of course, it is important that law enforcement get a warrant because of civil liberties reasons. But also, this is making it difficult for American companies to do business overseas. Ever since Edward Snowden revealed the scope of American surveillance practices, there's been a perception from many in Europe that our products are tainted. And that's opened up a competitive edge to anyone who can say, our products are not tainted. Anything you buy from the U.S. is going to have an NSA backdoor in it. And, and that, in turn, is also a civil liberties issue, because what that really does is to undermine the leadership of American companies and push people around the world into using services that are uh, homegrown. That's what's something that many governments would love to have, because those governments actually are even more aggressive than the United States government in getting access for their law enforcement agencies, in some cases also for their national security agencies, but also in censoring those sites and services. And so we're really in a situation where America's uh, failures on surveillance are in turn undermining American business and in turn undermining basic values that are really protected here in the United States through the First Amendment, for example, 
in a way that, that, that they're not protected overseas. So that should be deeply troubling to everyone. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, some companies that are being adversely impacted by American surveillance practices. And speaking of those companies, uh, one of the issues that's really gotten, that was huge in 2015, and it's only going to get bigger in 2016, is the issue of permissionless innovation. And, and some companies that come to mind when, when I use that term are Uber and Airbnb. It's really the disruptive upstart running up against established legacy industries that have failed to innovate and are now turning to government to bail them out. So what should President Obama be saying about the regulatory battles between Uber and the taxi monopolies and Airbnb and the hotel industry? What should he say tonight? Well, he shouldn't say what Hillary Clinton has said. Hillary has, uh, has been fairly dismissive of those services and indeed has sided against them in saying, for example, that they should be subject to old models of labor regulation, which would probably drive out of business a company like Uber. Uh, he should be standing up for them. These are services that progressives should love. They, they empower both uh, drivers and also uh, consumers. And it's not contrary to the stereotype, just uh, upper middle class white people in big cities. It's people all around the country. Uh, for example, out in the Bay Area, Uber, I think it's the case that their most popular routes are the feeder stations for the BART. And it's people who, who need a way, a cheap way, but a faster way of getting to, in to take the train into the city so they can go to work at their at their jobs that, frankly, are not very low paying. We're talking about the, the bottom end of the economic scale. Those are people who are benefiting, especially from really innovative services like Uber Pool that allow you to, to have multiple people in the car together. Those are both uh, progressive in an economic sense and also obviously very green. So the president should be standing up for those. But this is largely a matter for the states. Uh, it's largely something that state and local governments have done very badly. And there's a role here, a very positive role, for the Federal Trade Commission. The best thing the FTC does is competition advocacy. And that means going around to state governments and saying to them, look, you really shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're hurting your own consumers. Uh, on the Republican side of the aisle, I hope to start seeing uh, Ted Cruz talk about this, in particular because he led the last major initiative at the FTC that opposed these sorts of barriers at the state level. That's why you can buy, for example, contact lenses online. That was something the FTC made a priority back in uh, 2001, 2000, uh, 2004, in that range. And it's something that they haven't done very much these days and that, indeed, they've been very shy about doing because they don't intervene unless they're asked to, which means that when the taxi cab regulator that is owned by the taxi cab industry, wants to do something, the FTC generally doesn't get involved because nobody's asking them to intervene. And that, that's something that could be changed. And you could see leadership from the president on that. Especially when you see some of the dangers of regulating these industries out of existence. Or, you know, you mentioned Uber might have a problem with, uh, with labor regulation, but Uber is a big company with a lot of resources. They might be able to weather the storm that Hillary Clinton wants to, you know, bring down on them. But let's think about the next company. Let's think about the companies that don't have an army of lobbyists and lawyers. And I think a lot of what we do at Tech Freedom is to highlight how regulation, big companies might not like regulation, but they're in the best position to probably deal with it. It's the small companies, the people who want to compete with Uber, who are really going to be the victims of an outdated business model. Yeah, well, you're certainly not going to hear that from this president. Unfortunately, he's taken the very opposite view. He uh, really got the FCC to change course to take a much more aggressive stance on internet regulation. And we're now starting to see some of the consequences of that. 
as that approach, which goes far beyond traditional net neutrality, become more apparent. Uh, and I think it's it's really up to the courts to see what happens. You could see a court decision from the D.C. Circuit in the next uh, few months, and it may really be up to his FCC to do something about this. And really, he has an opportunity to say that whatever the courts decide, there is a simpler solution for addressing concerns about net neutrality, which is legislation. And what are those concerns, really? What do they boil down to? Well, there are some concerns about business practices that might harm consumers, and there needs to be a role for government to deal with those. We've never disagreed with that. That I would prefer to see done by the Federal Trade Commission, but you could also see legislation that gives the FCC the authority to address those core concerns about transparency, discrimination, harmful business practices. But I think what you really want to see is for the FCC to be put on a secure footing without uh, having a, a, a wide range of regulatory powers that could be used in other ways without opening the door to uh, restrictions on encryption, uh, such as would happen, as we mentioned yesterday, uh, from the FCC's reclassification of, of broadband services as telecommunication services. What we really want to see here is to put this issue to bed. Uh, and that concern is in part about regulation, but it's mostly about broadband competition and deployment. And that's an area where, again, the president could take a leading role and, and make this a priority. Unfortunately, his Broadband Opportunity Council didn't really say what I think needs to be said, which is that the federal government needs to make things as easy as possible for deployment to happen, especially on federal highways. Uh, but states and localities need to step up to the mat. And if they won't, I think there is a proper role for the federal government to preempt their, uh, their rules, make sure, for example, that they're not charging unreasonable rates for using state and local assets. Yeah, and you talk about how America's approach to internet regulation is really going to have an impact here, but it's also going to have an impact abroad. When we have conversations in the U.S. about encryption being a problem and how the government needs to have a solution, you mentioned that countries like China and Russia would love nothing more than for us to have a similar view than them on that issue. And when it comes to net neutrality in the U.S., we have this debate in a country where a lot of people enjoy internet access, high speeds, the vast majority have access to things that a lot of people in other countries don't. And you look at what we do when the U.S. takes a hardline stance on internet regulation, it really opens the door to other countries to twist that and make it seem like the U.S. is providing moral cover to oppressive regimes who want to crack down on the internet in the name of, quote, net neutrality. And this just happened. We, we've raised this concern for years and many people have dismissed it as speculative. But the Egyptian government just shut down the free basics program that Facebook was offering that was a way to get people online. It, it's precisely intended to increase adoption, which is why the Egyptian government wanted to stop it. They want fewer people using social media services because those services have been used to take down despotic regimes in the past and will be used again in the future. So you're starting to see examples where net neutrality has been used as a cover for what is really about censorship. And I don't mean to say that they are the same thing, but the key point that a president here needs to make is that we can use all the lofty language and fine abstractions here in the United States we want. We need to keep in mind that what we do legitimizes what other countries do and they, that what we do will be twisted. And that's why it's so critically important that any time we start talking about regulating the internet for, for good purposes included, we need to make sure that we do that in the narrowest way possible and that we don't open the door either in the U.S. or in, in foreign countries for that discretion that's being given to government to be abused. 
going back to how regulation often affects the smaller companies more than the big companies, it's probably fair to say that net neutrality is something that the United States, while we have our problems with the FCC's approach to internet regulation, that you know most people in the United States are still gonna enjoy internet service and it's not gonna really bring the sky down on everyone. But in a country like India, where only 20% of the country is connected right now, and Facebook wants to try to get people online with an innovative offering like Free Basics, where certain services are completely free and other services are not, that necessarily means that not everything's gonna be treated the same. And the problem is when India turns to the United States and sees you know, a hardline stance on net neutrality, all internet traffic must treat, be treated exactly the same, it's really harming Facebook's efforts to bring connectivity to a country that doesn't have it. Well, and that's true also here in the US. We've seen this uh, back in 2011, Metro PCS was trying to help people in urban areas get online with, uh, with the same kind of offering, offering unlimited YouTube viewing, uh, and that was driven out of business. And now we're seeing the same sorts of concerns raised against T-Mobile. You would think that everyone would be celebrating T-Mobile's ability to compete with, with AT&T and Verizon by offering unlimited music streaming or now uh, free video streaming, and instead T-Mobile's being attacked. And it's an example of how uh, the people who've been pushing for regulation really have a much more radical idea of what it should do than companies like T-Mobile, which did support that regulation and are now starting to see that it doesn't necessarily mean what they thought it means. So as listeners are probably aware, you've signed up for a lot of websites, a lot of your data is online, and uh, companies like Uber and Google use the data they collect from consumers to improve their services, better target advertising, help departments of transportation around the country better manage traffic. And of course, big data has the potential to be one of the most positive forces in society, but many people are also worried about privacy and what bad things could be done with big data. So what should President Obama be saying about big data, given that it's such an important issue and it's only going to get bigger as the data set gets bigger? Well, literally no one in America owes more to big data than Barack Obama. He would not have been elected president if his campaign had not done such a brilliant job of parsing uh, the data about consumers' interests, voters' interests, to target them better. He did that in both of his campaigns. Uh, that's something that's now being done very widely. Of course, now that people like Ted Cruz are doing it, they're being criticized for it. But it's now part of American politics. And it's simply a way of messaging, uh, messaging better. It's part of free speech. It's part of understanding our world better. And it has the potential to help not just for political communications and not just for advertisement, but it has the potential to help uh, predict uh, disease outbreaks, Google flu trends is a good example of how something like search terms can be used for the totally unexpected purpose of mapping a flu outbreak. But there are many other examples. And you would hope that this president would come out swinging and say that data is the lifeblood of Silicon Valley. It's the thing that makes American companies work uh, and able to, to deliver new and innovative uh, services, not just social networking, but, but services that may, for example, allow you to to offer better credit scoring, better ways of uh, rewarding people for being good credit risks. And instead, what you've seen is um, uh, increasing fear-mongering around big data. Uh, people uh, have raised concerns about this for some time, and, and legitimately so. There are always valid concerns about new technologies. The problem is that the agencies in the government that are supposed to stand up for consumers and uh, to weigh costs and benefits and talk about both sides of this and, and to 
uh, remind us when certain risks are uh, perhaps more hypothetical are not really doing that. The Federal Trade Commission just put out a report that uh, put a lot of emphasis on very speculative harms, very little uh, discussion of benefits, and zero economic analysis. So I would hope that uh, Obama would take a stronger stance in defense of big data and especially would remind everyone that we really don't want to go down the road that the Europeans have gone down, limiting very tightly what can be done in studying data. Even if Obama did come out swinging for big data, his administration's surveillance practices are actually contributing to that European fear of, of privacy violations. And, and the, the more we can do to reform our surveillance practices, I think the fears over privacy in commercial data use would be uh, ameliorated a little bit. Oh, absolutely. It's certainly true that uh, the, the pile-on around big data is largely being driven by concerns about surveillance. And it's, uh, it's really misdirected, and it's unfortunate that this administration is not willing to focus on the, the key issues. They've, they've given up on, on uh, big data and even on their own consumer private, privacy regulatory issue because their first priority has been defending U.S. surveillance practices. But what can you expect from the president that uh, campaigned on closing Guantanamo and still hasn't done it? Well, it passed... State of the Union addresses are any indication. Several of the things that we've talked about will not be making it into the speech tonight, but... uh, Probably most of them. But that's why you have us to give you a better version of the State of the Union and what Obama should be saying. Look out for our reaction to the State of the Union on our Twitter feed at uh, at TechFreedom or on Facebook at facebook.com slash techfreedom. And thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a Washington, D.C.-based 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about our work in tech policy and to listen to other episodes, find us online at www.techfreedom.com.